God speaks to us in his word from Mark 13, verses 1 through 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what, a, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things be and what will be a sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. But the gospel must first be proclaimed to the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but, whatever, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thank you, Emily. <laughs> yeah, light reading, she said. Light sermon today. You guys are welcome. Any guests in the room, please? Um, thank you for being here. Please don't run away on our church just yet. We're about to approach one of the hardest to understand most complex chapters in the entire Bible. And believe me when I tell you, I stand up here with a lot of humility, a lot of fear and trembling to even approach this text. And here's why. I've been studying this chapter for three weeks now. All of our elders have. And particularly those of us that are gonna be preaching in various frontline congregations. And one thing that has become absolutely clear to me is godly men, smarter men than me, who have studied more, Men that throughout history didn't have things like iPhones and other appointments and they were devoted to just the word. Those men who love Jesus and are smart have differing opinions on the Olivet Discourse. And on Mark 13, which is also paralleled in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. We are preaching through the book of Mark. And as a, as a church that preaches through the Bible verse by verse, we don't get an opportunity to just skip over the hard parts. Believe you me. If I could, I would. And I would say, yeah, we could talk about it. Let's just go have a conversation over coffee. We don't get to do that. We want to preach through the word of God. And the reason it's important for us to preach through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse is because of this one simple thing. Context matters. Jesus is preaching to a group of people in a group of time that were surrounded by a lot of things. And the context of Mark 13 is as important as any other context in the Bible. Most people read this chapter. They read Matthew 24, Luke 21, 
And it's called the Olivet Discourse, by the way, because Jesus literally, Olivet Discourse, Mount of Olives sermon, Jesus was giving a sermon on the Mount of Olives or a discourse. People get twisted up with the Olivet Discourse because most of the time we read this like Jesus is all of a sudden talking to the disciples about something that they would have no context or no idea or belief in. History, news, TV, Hollywood, authors have now made theater out of something that Jesus had no desire to make theater about. So we're going to preach through Mark 13. I'm going to try my best to handle the word of God rightly, divide it rightly. And we're going to take three weeks to do it because it really is going to challenge some of your ideals about the end of the world, about what Jesus is saying in this particular chapter, and about what he's not saying. And let me just invite you into something. Like I would invite you in every single time we get together, every single service we have. Um, be people that let the word of God speak to them. Don't be people that speak to the word of God. So that means that every time we open up this book, we listen, we receive, we open our hands, and we say, God, I have preconceived notions. I've heard things and read books and seen movies and whatever, but I'm gonna lay all of that at your feet, and I'm gonna say, come inform my mind by this book. That's what the Bible tells us to do, to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. So this is the word of God to us. Let's open it up. Let's allow ourselves to be offended where we need to be. And let's approach the scripture the same way. Like I told you, Mark 13 is known as the Olivet Discourse. It's paralleled in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21. It's where a lot of people get their ideologies about the end of the world. That theology, the study of the end times, is called eschatology. Eschatology, that's a very theological, kind of pastory word. It simply means this. It's derived from two Greek words, eschaton, which means last or final, and logos, which means word or discourse. Eschatology means simply the study of last things or the study of end times. There are generally two pits that we fall into as the Christian people, particularly in the Bible Belt, and we have to avoid both of these pits when it comes to end times or our ideas of eschatology. The first is this. We become dogmatic about our opinions. We become opinionated on our hot takes. We have hot takes for things that we don't know about. This is what Paul tells us um, in 2 Timothy, I believe, People who are looking out for the truth, people who are constantly learning but never arriving at any form of real truth. And in 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy this, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling or dividing the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble. Avoid it. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Basically, Paul is saying, how selfish is it for you to 
have your dogmatic opinions over things you don't know anything about and then get into irreverent babble. And it actually what's accomplished is, is that people are led away from God, not towards him. It's a very selfish approach to ministry. Any ministry student in the room, listen to me. It is, a, according to the word of God, it is selfish for you to be more about your opinions than it is whether or not people hear what the Bible has to say. So we become dogmatic in our opinions about theology. We all have different opinions. We all have different opinions about eschatology. Some are pre-mill, some are ah-mill, some are post-mill. Some of y'all don't even care or know to care what that even means. I have, over the last three weeks, read probably more for this sermon than I've ever read in my life towards one sermon. Very different men who all have several things in common. One, they're all a lot smarter than I am. Two, they're probably more godly than me, but they are very godly. Three, they have devoted their life to knowing the word, all differing opinions on what Mark 13 means, what the end of time is. Arrogance is what leads to dogmatic opinions, and then dogmatic opinions lead to obsession. You have a hot take, what you think you have yourself finally been the one who's gotten some drastic, great revelation that nobody else has ever been able to figure out from the word of God, and that's how you get crazy videos and books and charts and graphs and blood moons and all kinds of stuff, and people just obsess over it. Dogmatic opinions come from arrogance. They lead to obsession. We don't want to be dogmatic. We do not want to lose our charity as Christians towards one another for our differing opinions or for the sake of our dogmatic hot takes. Let's not sacrifice our call towards kindness and reasonableness and charity towards each other for the sake of our own opinions. That's a command of Scripture. So long as it depends on you, Paul says in Romans 12, so long as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He also says in Philippians 4, let your reasonableness be known to all men. Let it be known. The first ditch that we fall into when it comes to end times is we become dogmatic and obsessive about our opinions. The second thing is this, just as bad, totally opposite, we become disinterested or lazy. We have all witnessed people who are dogmatic. We don't want anything to do with them. We think it doesn't even make sense to us in Scripture. And so what we do is we turn the other way. Instead of fighting, we fly. <laughs> we flee. And we've adopted this idea about the last things that I don't know how it's going to work out, this pan-millennials kind of idea. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know it's going to all pan out in the end. I have been there, let me tell you. But here's the problem. It's good enough for the prophets to talk about. It's good enough for the apostles to talk about Jesus as well and for the Holy Spirit to put it in the Bible through Paul, through John, then it should be good enough for us to pay attention to. We need to know about eschatology because what we know about the way that Jesus is actually gonna return, what we know about what he is and isn't gonna do, actually affects the way that we see the world. It affects the way that we pray the world, for the world. So let's not be disinterested or dogmatic. And I'm just gonna be straight with you guys. The next three weeks, there is no doubt some of you will be offended in this room. There's no doubt. Our ideas 
of last things, our ideas of all of it discourse, how Jesus is going to come back, the signs that point to that, if this chapter is even about that, our ideas of that are going to be tested. And there's room for offense, particularly two types of people. Christians in the room, some older Christians in the room, who grew up believing a eschatology that originated in the 1830s, was made popular in the 1940s and 50s, this Tim LaHaye kind of eschatology. Things like dispensationalism, the rapture, those types of things were made popular in the 1800s and 1900s. What happens to earth when Jesus comes back? What happens to us when we die? That type of ideology, people who believe that, they will be offended, surely. And then also, not just that though, young Christians and the non-Christians who will be surprised at the reality of God's judgment over sin and death, who will be shocked at God's judgment enacted in the world that we live in. So I am between a rock and a hard place as a pastor, but we have to rightly divide the word of truth. There's opportunity for lots of offense in this room. Open your mind, open your heart. Let's let the word of God speak to us today. There are four things that we bank on, Orthodox Christians bank on when it comes to the end of the world. These four things are Orthodox in every way. Write them down, take note, whatever it is. The first is this, Jesus will come again. There's no doubt about it. He will come again. The second, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. All historical Orthodox Christians believe it. He will come again. There will be a new heavens and new earth. Third, Satan's sin and death will be ultimately and finally destroyed. And then the fourth, there will be a resurrection of the dead. Those four things are not up for debate. You will undoubtedly have questions over the next three weeks. Questions are a good thing. We want questions in this church. What we don't want is dishonest people. We want people that ask questions and even have doubts. I don't want you to ever be afraid to have doubts or ask questions. Come with your questions. You will have them. Because there's gonna be questions about eschatology or end times or some of the things we preach this week and maybe even particularly next week and the week after. On March 23rd, we've invited Dr. Sam Storms, one of the foremost theologians in the world today and a pastor that we love. We've invited Dr. Sam Storms to come and teach us on eschatology on March 23rd in downtown Oklahoma City. You see it there, Evening of Eschatology with Dr. Sam Storms, 6.30 to 8.30. That's open to every single guest, visitor, member, everybody in our church. You're all welcome to come into that. All right, let's jump into Mark 13 together. Have your Bibles open, have pens ready. If the saying is true that not all teachers are preachers, but all preachers need to be teachers, today is definitely gonna be more teaching than preaching. So this is classroom, it's time to take notes. Please follow along. If you fall asleep, I will call you out in front of, I'm just kidding, I won't. That's okay. That would have been a lot of people to call out in that first service. All right, let's jump into it. Let me recap where we're at. Mark 13. We're walking chapter by chapter through Mark. This is the story of Jesus' ministry and life on earth. There's 16 chapters in Mark. And there's been two questions that have been asked. Is he God? Is he the king? Is he Messiah? We answered that question in Mark 8. 
Peter said, you are the Christ. But then the next question that immediately follows is, what kind of king is he? Is he the ones that every Jew would have said was gonna come and overthrow the Roman government and make Israel a powerful and dominant nation again? That's what they thought the Messiah was gonna be. That's what Peter thought. Well, the answer is no. Even though they don't believe it yet, Jesus keeps telling them, I have to go and die. But the problem is, is they would not, that, they couldn't compute that. They thought the Messiah was gonna come, he was prophesied to come, and that he was gonna establish an everlasting kingdom, a not dying kingdom. It's hard to be the king over an everlasting kingdom if you're killed. And that he would sit on the throne of David. That was their idea of the Messiah. That he would overthrow the Roman government and make them Israel. Every other nation, Israel again. Well, you are the king, they said to Jesus, but then he tells them, I've gotta be killed by the very people that you think I'm coming to overthrow. And they lose it, they just cannot compute. Jesus has gone around calming storms, healing people, raising a little girl from the dead, all kinds of crazy stuff. There's no doubt he's God, who else is gonna be able to do that? But what kind of Messiah is he? So now Jesus, with disciples who are Jewish disciples who would have grown up in the same kind of conviction as everyone else, Jesus is doing ministry all around Jerusalem. And now he goes into the place, historically, maybe the place that has been more identified with a, per, with a nation, maybe the, the most identity any nation has ever gotten from a religious structure came from the Jews and the temple that Solomon built. Jesus is now going into this temple for the past several days. He's been ministering there, and this thing was crazy. Solomon built the temple over 580 years before. Herod, who was pagan, by the way, not a Jew, King Herod said, this is such an important landmark in the world that I'm gonna almost triple it in size. It was already massive. And to make the Jewish people, to, give, to put them at, a, at ease, he takes a 50-year project of doubling and almost tripling and remodeling this temple, and it's almost complete by Jesus' day. It was called one of the great wonders of the ancient world. I don't know if many of you, I mean, imagine maybe the only thing I can think of that would come close to resembling its depth and its breadth and its magnificence would be like the Great Wall of China. This one building had multiple buildings in it. It was built by hand, by stone. Herod employed over a thousand priests to be masons to build the temple. In length, over 12 football fields long. 12 football fields long. This building encompassed 35 acres. Inside the building were multiple other buildings. There was the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women and the court of the Jews and the court of the priests and the holy place, the holy of holies and the mercy seat and all of that was inside. Every one of those were massive structures. It was gigantic. Archaeologists found 
one stone. Not, they didn't use quick creep back then, you know. Found one single stone, one stone in the remains of this temple, the second temple, Herod's temple. One of the stones weighed over one million pounds. This thing was crazy. It was the identity of every Jew. You know why? Because they grew up being Yahweh's people. They grew up being God's people. And the temple was the place that they could go and sacrifice to Yahweh. And they did. There was a room called the Holy of Holies. And once a year, the chief priest would go into the Holy of Holies under strict order to walk a certain way, sacrifice a certain way. It had to be a certain type of lamb. They would kill a lamb. The people of God, the priest would go in the Holy of Holies one day of the year. He would sacrifice this perfect spotless lamb for all the sins of all the people. And if he messed up in God's presence, he would die. I mean, in any way, he would be killed. That was so serious and happened somewhat frequently that they had to tie a rope around the priest's waist. And the rope would go outside the Holy of Holies and if he didn't come out in a while. This was serious. God was serious about his temple. He gave Solomon very strict instructions on how to build it. Herod comes in and doubles, almost triples it in size. I want you to see that for the Jewish people, the temple represented their identity. And it represented God to them. And their identity as a nation was only founded upon God as their God. 580 years this thing stood. Jesus goes into the temple now. He's been doing ministry there. And he's been confronting all of the Jewish leaders, all the religious leaders, about how they even worship God. So just picture this with me. Jesus, God himself, is going into the temple that he himself, along with the Father and the Spirit, gave instruction to Solomon to build. The glory of God in the flesh is now inside the temple that he gave instruction to build. And the first thing he does in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles, which was like a street market, he realizes that Jewish people are taking advantage of Gentiles. The first thing Jesus does is he condemns the temple and he calls it a den of robbers. Well, that's important. One, because Jesus was angry. Two, because Jesus is doing what he does. He's fulfilling all of the Bible, all of the law and prophets. In Jeremiah 7, way back in the Old Testament, Jeremiah stands up, gives a sermon in the temple. And here's what he says. He says, in the temple you worship God. This is in Jeremiah hundreds of years before. You worship God in the temple, but then when you leave the temple, you worship other gods. Hello. You have made this temple a den of robbers, Jeremiah tells him. Jesus comes in now in the court of all nations. He says, you have made my father's house, which is supposed to be a house of prayer, you made it a den of robbers. He ministers throughout the temple, several days, couple days at least, the last week of his life. He talks to them about taxes. They send Pharisees and Sadducees and every other type of person to him to trap him. 
And he never gets trapped. He just gives them the kingdom of God. He, they, ask, they ask him about taxes. Should we pay taxes? And he says, look, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God's what's God's. God wants your body. He wants yourself. And then the final thing that happens before he's about to now exit the temple, he's been doing ministry there, he has caused a ruckus. But they can't deny the authority that which he speaks. And the final thing that happens is there's all of these men who are in robes, who are standing tall, and it comes time for offering. And they take their check, and there's lots of zeros on the check. And they walk over to the offering, set it in. And then there's this one lady who lost her husband. She would have been outcast in that society. As a matter of fact, the Jewish leaders of the day, the religious leaders, would have been charged under the law to take care of her. The Jewish leaders give their big check. The widow, who's supposed to be taken care of by their big check, gives everything she has, everything she has, two little coins, and drops it in the offering plate. And then his final condemnation before he gives his ultimate condemnation of the temple Jesus says she has given more than anybody else has today. She gave with her heart. Now it's time for Jesus to exit the temple. And I want you to feel what's happening here. He's not just leaving a building. The glory of God went into the temple at the start of the week. And now the glory of God is about to exit the temple. So the first point is this. Jesus' temple exit is a prophetic sign. It's a prophetic sign. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew ask him privately. They ask him a question that we're about to get to. As he came out of the temple, it says, now out of the temple, onto the mount on the east side of the city. There's a mount there, Jerusalem, called the Mount of Olives. Jesus on the mountain. It's not a coincidence that he goes out of the city and goes onto the mountain on the east side. You know why? Because Ezekiel 11 says this about prophesying about the coming king. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. That's way back in the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills all of Scripture, all the law and prophets in Ezekiel 11 in this moment. For Jesus to leave the temple in that way, after having condemned religious leaders of Israel for their hypocrisy, is both breathtaking and symbolic. Can you imagine what the disciples felt? Jesus is our homie but he has just literally condemned everything that we've stood for. And I think he's Messiah, but what is happening? <laughs> they would have been angry, confused, really frustrated. And honestly, anger is the right word. For Jesus to tell them, when they say, look at this beautiful temple. And then Messiah comes and says, not a single stone will be left. Imagine how angry you would be. What do you mean? 
That's who we are. This building. That's what we've known. That's our whole life, our whole way of thinking, our heartbeat, our national identity is wrapped up in that building. And on top of that, how stupid do you have to be to think that that gigantic building will be torn down by somebody? This is what I'd be thinking. He confronts them. He's always confronted them. Something's happening here. Jesus has been trying to tell them the old way is not the way. There is one way now, and I am it. I am the way. I am the new temple. That's Jesus' words to them. It will be torn down. He is prophetically now leaving the temple. The glory of God came into it. The glory of God is now leaving it and overlooking it on the east side. The second thing I want you to see this. Put it simply, and this is where I need you to really pay attention. Try not to be offended. The Olivet Discourse is quite simply put, it is an answer to the disciple question. That's what it is. Jesus is answering a question they asked. You remember when we said, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. Here's what they ask. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus said the temple is going to fall down. It's going to be destroyed. They say, when is the temple going to be destroyed? That's what they're asking. When will it be destroyed and how will we know it's about to happen? Simply. Most people get the Olivet Discourse, in my opinion, this is where we start to get a little sideways with it. It's when we start to read into things that Jesus is not actually answering. And we start to ask questions that were never actually asked in this section of scripture. The disciples asked Jesus a question. He responded about the temple. That's it. That's what he's responding about. At this point, the disciples didn't even believe that Jesus was going to die. They sure aren't asking him about when he's going to come back. They didn't even think he was going to die, much less that he would be raised, much less that there would be a second coming. Remember we talked about in Jewish custom and their belief, there would be a Messiah that would come. He would establish his throne on the throne of David. It would be an everlasting kingdom. Whatever do you mean he's going to die? They're not expecting him to die. So they're not asking about the second coming. They're asking about the temple. Jesus will answer it in Old Testament language, considering their world, like he always does. In context, he's answering a question that first century Jewish men ask, and he's answering it to first century Jewish men. Where we get it wrong is when we start to read into something more possibly here than just the question that's being answered. The reason... It's so important to believe this because it's so important to believe that about the whole Bible. There's context and it matters. These are humans, God and human, God and man. He's looking at the people that he loves. He's answering questions about their future. The Olivet Discourse is the answer to a question. And I believe that there are so many things in Mark 13 that have implications for the end of time. I do believe that. But I also believe, simply put, that most, if not all, of this discourse is about what will happen to the temple, how it will be destroyed, 
And that will actually come within their lifetime. In 70 AD, immediately after Jesus is resurrected, the Roman army marched into, overtook the Jewish capital and tore down every single stone and desecrated that holy place. And Jesus, because he loves his people, he's telling them about what's about to happen. Some scholars believe the entire chapter is about that. Um, some, some scholars would say that all one through 37, at least verses one through 31, are forecasting the events the early church would experience in 33 to 70 AD. I'm not here to debate that with you. I'm here to give you this word. One important detail as we approach this scripture is this. He says to the disciples, truly I say to you, when he says that, he wants you to hear what he says then. Truly, listen to my words, Jesus says. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Dr. Sam Storms has been helpful to our elders as we have gotten ready for this chapter. He's a man that we trust, been a pastor for years, theological mind, he says this. Some try to evade this point by arguing that the word translated generation actually means race, and that Jesus therefore was simply saying that the Jewish race would not die out until all these things took place. But this would require the, the Greek word genos, whereas the word here is genea. Furthermore, the word genea occurs 27 times in the Gospels and never once means race. Generation means generation. He's talking to the disciples. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The word generation is used elsewhere in the Gospels of those living in Christ's day. Every time the words this generation occur in the Gospels, they mean Jesus' contemporaries i.e. the sum total of those living at the same time that he did. Context is so important. For Jesus to say, truly I say to you, your generation will not pass away until these things take place, we need to listen. Those are his words. Let's hear what Jesus really says in the context it's really given. The third thing is this. Jesus quite simply tells them what to expect and how to respond leading up to the total destruction, the chaotic, cataclysmic event of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Jesus tells them what to expect and how to respond. And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Your generation will not pass away until these come, things come to pass. Jesus is telling them. Well, with our concept of earthquakes and famines and wars and rumors of wars and what we've read in Hollywood and random books, people made a lot of money off this ideology. With our concept of that, how could all of these things come to pass in their generation? What do you mean? He just said the gospel must be preached to all nations. Again, we need to see what Jesus says and doesn't say. 
in the Bible Belt, along with news, TV, and Hollywood, it's good theater to make these things about the end of the world. But in fact, Jesus is answering a question about the destruction of the temple. He's not answering a question about his second coming. This is about the incredible, unmatched, downright terrifying. What happened in 70 AD, as I've read about it, I almost don't even have a grid to describe the absolute terror that took place when the Romans overtook the Jews in that temple. They said, Josephus was a historian, he was a leader of the Jewish army back then, one of them, but he was captured by the Romans and he ended up just being a scribe for them. Took great detail. He counts about 1.1 million Jews that died that day. 1.1 million. That's in, a, that's in an earth that didn't have 7 billion people on it. I mean, that would have been, imagine that. Well, next week is gonna be tough. I wanna tell you to come because we need it. It's gonna be tough, but we'll learn next week about upwards of 500 people that were being crucified daily. Parents that were handing their children over to just survive, giving them up. Brothers giving their brothers over. It was crazy. Between 33 and 70 AD, there was so much tension, so much happening around this region. Jesus is doing what he does. He's being a good high priest. You know what a good high priest does? You know what a good shepherd does? He tells his people what's coming, and then he tells them, I will be with you. That's what he's about to do here. Let's talk about a few of the things that he mentioned. False messiahs. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Uh, Again, Josephus, first century Jewish historian, reported that during the reign of Nero, which is this time, deceivers and false prophets were arrested daily. In his ecclesiastical history, Eusebius refers to the prevalence of false messiahs in this period as compared to other periods. And then wars and rumors of wars. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. I want to read for you what Dr. Storm says here. The period between 33 and 70 AD witnessed countless military disturbances and uprising in Caesarea. Look at these numbers. Took 20,000 Jewish lives. Escathopolis, 13,000 Jews were killed. In Alexandria, 50,000 were slain. 10,000 were killed in Damascus. When the emperor Caligula ordered his statue to be erected in the temple of Jerusalem, imagine that. 40 AD, the Jews refused. Because they refused, they lived in a state of constant anxiety over imminent war with Rome, and they were in such distress that they even neglected to grow food. What's the point? We're all going to die. Wars and rumors of wars. We, we feel this phrase today. Believe me, I felt it this week more than normal. As we paid attention to what's happening in the Ukraine right now. And the thing that frustrates me and the thing I want to challenge you to think about, and I want to challenge you to be as a church, is 
There is an ideology, there is a concept, I don't know how to describe it other than just a way of thinking, particularly in the Bible Belt, where we almost treat these wars and rumors of war because our theology is so outside of biblical theology at times. We act like those things are, we're like chomping at the bit. I've heard people say, you know what this means, right? The Lord's almost coming back. There have been wars forever, rumors of wars. And then what it does is it turns our heart to a flippancy towards the things that are happening on earth now. That's not how the church should be. The church should be like Jesus, do not be alarmed. These things must take place. And then what happens is, because we're always looking towards this theoretical ideal about the second coming of Jesus, which that will happen, but in this way, it's just, we get sort of giddy. And we start thinking, man, this is good, this is happening, the Lord's on his way. It's not good. It's not good. It's not wars and rumors of war are not good. For the Ukrainian church, this is not good. And the church's job is not to sit back and act like we just want this thing to happen. What happens then is no Christians are then mobilized to pray, to draw the weapon of prayer for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Eschatology matters. How we read the Bible matters. How we respond as Christians, it matters. And how we think about what's happening in the Ukraine matters. We need to draw the weapon of prayer. So we're gonna do that right now. Let's pray for Ukraine all across the room. God, we do. We hate war. We know that you hate it as well. Somehow, within your kingdom, within your sovereignty, you cause all things to work together for the good of those that are called according to your purpose. And we do pray right now fervently for the church in Ukraine. God, we ask that you would comfort those that are gonna lose their life. And then we ask that you would save thousands. You're the only one that can do it. You're the only one that can take something so terrible as war and turn it for your kingdom and for your glory. And we ask that you would do that. We pray against this war. We ask that you would push back Russia God, we pray that you would protect that country. We pray that Russians would be saved. We pray that your glory would be revealed in that country as well. We pray that the church in Russia would rise up and pray. We rise up and pray right now. We ask for your sovereign hand to come. Draw, draw your sword, King Jesus, come and defend your church there. And then, and then give us the courage to trust you no matter what happens. In Jesus' name, amen. Earthquakes and famines. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. Recorded earthquakes in Crete in this time. Smyrna all over the place. Laodicea, Heropolis, Colossae were all devastated by an earthquake in 60 AD. Roman historians both mention the prevalence of famines in this period in time. Also persecution. Jesus tells them, but be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. You can read any chapter in Acts and that pretty well sums up that book. And then gospel proclamation. This might be the, the toughest for some of us because of the way that we grew up thinking about the nations and the task before us. 
He says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Matthew 24 makes it even harder because it says it like this. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, how in the world, pastor, could that have to do with 37 years between 33 and 70 AD? Preach the gospel to all nations? Here's how. First, the words whole world are translation of the term oikomene, which literally means an inhabited area, a standard term for that time for the Greek world, then for the Roman Empire, and subsequently for the known world. Biblical scholar R.T. France gives this definition for whole world, meant primarily the area surrounding the Mediterranean and the lesser known areas of the east, around which stretch mysterious regions, comprising much of our old world, beyond the fringes of civilization. This is a biblical term for that area, and it makes sense when you think about what Jesus has asked us to do. The gospel is news to be shared. What he's asking them to do is no matter what pain or persecution or suffering come, open up your mouth and tell the people that you know and that are around you to share the gospel, and when they hear it and receive it, tell them to share the gospel with the people that are around them. And listen to me. We love, look, we, we love the nations in this church. Um, my, part of my life was changed when I read John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. I've been overseas, I've been other places, I love it. I love it, we are 100% for that. But my worry in our church and my worry in this part of the world is that we'll have an infatuation with the nations, whatever that is, that God never meant for us to be infatuated with. The nations are very simply this. Do you have people that are in your life right now that don't know Jesus? That is a people group. Your school, your class, the people around you, your family. Sometimes I fear that we can neglect what's in front of us on the ground at the expense of going to somewhere else. And let me just tell you, let's not... Let's not neglect who we are, where we are, and what's around us because of an idealistic view of the nation somewhere. Be called to the nations. We, I'm a thousand percent behind you. We will give you every resource we have for sure, but don't forget about where you're at. Be where you are. It also helps us to see where else this is used in the New Testament. Luke 2, 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, oikomene, should be registered all the Roman Empire. Acts 11, Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit there would be a great famine all over the world. Acts 24, for we have found this man, Paul, a plague, <laughs> one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. Writing before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Paul says to the Colossians that the gospel has been proclaimed to all creation under heaven. I don't think that Paul was talking about the native tribes in North and South America that they had yet to be discovered. Paul writes in Romans, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Romans 10, Paul says in regard to gospel proclamation that their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In Acts 2, finally, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That's an Acts. 
This gospel is to be proclaimed in all the area that touches your life in the surrounding area of the Roman Empire inhabited by Gentiles who need to hear the good news of Jesus. No matter the persecution, pain, suffering, or whatever, the gospel must be proclaimed. The fourth is this. This is the final one. It's my favorite one. Pain is inevitable. Pain is inevitable. But Jesus is with us. And when they bring you to trial, not if they, but when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand that you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The events between 33 and 70 AD after Jesus' resurrection and the destruction of the temple and the old sacrificial system fully were catastrophic on so many levels. So much pain, despair, confusion, suffering. And God tells them what he tells you and me today. Rely on the Holy Spirit. You don't have the answers, it's gonna feel crazy. You're gonna feel despairing. You're not gonna know what to do. You're gonna be so anxious. You're gonna feel for your life. You're gonna wonder why some people are acting this way and some people are acting this way. You're gonna wake up some days and you're gonna go, what is going on in my life? I feel crazy today. There's gonna be people that ask you about your faith. You're gonna have to defend your faith in some way. You're gonna have to talk about Jesus. You're gonna have to stand in the middle of a crazy, anxious world with a global pandemic or whatever, crazy politics, you name it. You're gonna have to stand there as a Christian and let me just tell you, you're not gonna have the words. That's okay. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Trust God. Trust God. How many of us today are conflicted and despairing? And how many of us are trying our best to muster the words inside of us to talk to ourselves to keep us from being, stop being anxious? Okay? There is one that the Bible talks about who has the name Comforter. You're not it. The Holy Spirit is labeled the Comforter. We need the Comforter in our lives. Rely on the Holy Spirit. It's true for us today. It was true for the church from 33 to 70 AD and the apostles and the disciples. Can you imagine going through 33 to 70 AD, that craziness, and not having the Holy Spirit? This is where the Acts of the Apostles came from. They needed God, and what they got was God. He was with them. Jesus is with us. Pain is inevitable. I'm gonna leave you with these three things. We're invited to the same things today by the help of God. One, Jesus tells them and he tells us, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed in verse seven. Two, this, pain is coming, but pain leads to life. It's an interesting type of pain. Jesus says these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Pain is necessary to get life. Jesus loves his disciples. He loves us enough to not sugarcoat the truth. He's telling them it's gonna be bad. It's about to get really bad. Next week, we'll see that Jesus says, it'll be so bad like the earth has not seen that God actually cuts the day short to spare those that he saved. 
it's going to be bad. Jesus tells us. He's telling you today. I'm not, I'm not here to deliver you from badness. I'm here to defeat ultimate enemies for you on your behalf, Satan, sin, and death. That's an eternal life. It's gonna be bad, but what comes on the other end is life. These are the beginning of birth pains. Life after pain. And then the third is this, endure. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, that sounds good, pastor. How am I supposed to do that? First off, I wanna show something to you. Will be saved is a promise. Salvation is a promise, which is great because we're about to take the table and we're about to drink the cup of the new covenant. And this is, let me tell you something. When we get to the table, you're gonna say, hallelujah, I'm glad the temple was destroyed because the temple represented an old covenant which I had to keep. And you and I both know that on your best day and your best life, you can't keep the covenant for 10 minutes. The good news about the new covenant is, is that the temple was destroyed. There is a new temple who is Jesus, who makes us, the church, his temple. He becomes the chief priest. He is the cornerstone of the temple, the church. He holds the keys to the covenant. Salvation is a promise. He holds the keys. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. How do we endure? We endure just like this. Trust God to give you the strength to endure. Stop trying to endure in yourself. Paul says it in Philippians 3. He says, I have not obtained it. I press on. How? In Philippians 2, Christ is at work in us. Christ at work in you. That's how we endure. God, the Holy Spirit, is with us. He has been given to us. He is our comforter. He is our power. He is our help. He's always accessible. Even when the world seems upside down and there's wars and rumors of wars and we misinterpreted the Bible or whatever we've done and we're freaking out, even when all that's happening, even when we live times of life of just like seasons where we're, we don't feel settled with God, we have a perfect high priest in Jesus. He's the perfect sacrifice. Today we're gonna dismiss into communion. I wanna invite you to come with your whole heart as we come to the table today. This is not just a ritual. Rituals are not bad, by the way. Rituals help us remember. They help us set our mind on God. They're not bad, so just don't get that out of our head. We've somehow in the Bible Belt, we've come to this conclusion that rituals can be bad somehow. They're, they're really not. <laughs> But I'm asking you to come to this, this commitment, this covenant meal with your whole heart today. Remember Jesus. Remember who holds the covenant. Remember the one that is in you. Remember who you are and the work that has happened in history for him to be able to say, I am your high priest. Remember that. As we come to the table today, let's take the bread and the wine as the people of God who pray for the world, listen to and submit to his word and live charitably and reasonably with each other. Let's stand up together. If you're serving the table, go ahead and come down. We have bread and gluten-free bread or crackers. We have wine and juice, they're labeled. This is your first time here, don't get them twisted. They look the same. The wine and the juice look the same, they have different names.
On the night he was betrayed, he held up a loaf of bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he held up a cup of wine. He said, this is my blood poured out for you. This is the cup of the new covenant. He said, when you take, eat and drink, as often as you do it, which is why we do it often, do it and remember me because we need help remembering. So you're gonna take communion, take it with whoever you came with, um, however you want. You're gonna be served communion today and then you're free to leave after you take communion, pray with your family or your friends. We'll have a prayer team down front during this communion time that'll be ready to pray with you about anything. If you have any questions about what I preached on today or if you have any questions about Jesus at all, the church, I know this was a lot. Thank you for hanging in there. If you have any questions at all, I would love to talk with you. I'll be right down front. So when you're ready, come receive communion and then you'll be dismissed to go. We'll be ready to pray with you guys.